ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. The Federal Court has today handed down a judgment on Project Sea Dragon. Could this be the final nail in the coffin for plans to build a massive prawn farm on the WANT border? I'll go through the court's decision with you in just a moment. Also today, you might know about the global seed vault in Norway. But did you know there's a town in the Territory with its own impressive seed bank? Yeah, this is some of the seeds we got here, and they're from everywhere, from all different air stations and around Tannen Creek area. Yeah, we'll go and check out this NT Seed Bank for ourselves before 1.30. A busy country hour today. I hope you can stick around. And of course, if you do need to duck out into the paddock for whatever reason, you can always download our podcast and listen at a time that suits you. The Northern Territory's commercial barramundi industry is under increasing pressure, with traditional owners and recreational fishers raising concerns about the industry's use of gill nets. It's been pointed out on programs like the Country Hour that over in Queensland, gill nets are getting phased out of the Great Barrier Reef and there's net restrictions proposed in the Queensland side of the Gulf of Carpentaria. It would seem gill nets are on the out. But if the commercial sector can't use nets, then what happens next? Well, Chris Bolton has become the first commercial fisho in Queensland to receive a licence to catch and sell line caught barramundi. He spoke with Dan Fitzgerald about how this all came about. So up until this year... Commercially, line-catching barramundi had been illegal, believe it or not. So the only legal method to catch barramundi in, on the east coast of Queensland, and I believe in the Gulf as well, was gill nets. When that became legal, I thought I'd give it a go. We, um, My market's mostly high-end restaurants and resorts. Their real focus on any of the produce they buy is sustainability and really high-quality produce. So... Um, I think as most most fishermen would know that well-looked-after saltwater barramundi is up there with some of the best-eating best fish you can get. So I decided to look into it and uh, spoke with a few of my customers, well, all of them actually, restaurants, chefs and resorts, and um, they, were, they were fairly hesitant initially because barramundi is... Uh, it, it hasn't got the best name as a high-end, high-end restaurant fish because of different reasons. And obviously, being line caught, we'd need a far higher price for line caught fish than, than net caught fish or farm barramundi. So, um, yeah, I had to explain to them the differences in 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 the method they were caught, the way they were caught, the you know, interactions with endangered species and things like that and the quality, they're all used to my my quality. Everything's perfect fish, brain spike, bled, 
flown to Sydney, you know, court today, flown tomorrow sort of thing. So after speaking with the, our customers, they all they were all keen to give it a go. And, yeah, we um, – And you've been able we, to get a premium, a good premium, so you're able to make a profit? Yeah, mate, yeah. I won't give away all the – all the prices and everything on here, but it's far, far higher than than any other wild caught barramundi, put it that way, and considerably higher than any farm fish. So it, it's prices unheard of before for barramundi. But as I said to the chefs, it's it's fish of a quality that you never would have seen before, and that's what I promised them, and that's what they got. You know, they've all given me feedback now that. It is, in fact, the best barramundi they've ever seen in both looks and taste. So they're all very happy and, and demand, yeah, well, demand's just instantly skyrocketed. So it's a, it's a good thing. Obviously, catching barramundi on a line is nowhere near as efficient as using a gill net. How do you go about it? Have you been able to catch a decent amount? Yeah, I think we've done all right, Dan. Um, it's definitely nowhere near as efficient as a gill net, that's for sure. It's and, and you know, we're catching them basically the same as any recreational fisherman would catch them. Some are on lures, but the majority of them are caught on hand lines and live bait. Just as anyone that'd go and catch a feed of barramundi, would go and catch them. We handle them a bit differently, of course. It's all icky, jimmy, brain spiked and bled and perfectly handled. But, um, yeah, there's, there's challenges for sure. I've, I've done, you know, recreational barrowfish since I was bloody in nappies, so I've caught a few, but there is a big difference between doing it for fun and doing it commercially. But, um you know, considering it was our first couple of trips, I, I think we've done pretty well myself. There'd be recreational fishers who go out wanting to have a day on the water and catch a bag full, but then come home empty-handed. Is is that a risk for you in this new line of work? Oh, mate, that's a risk with, with fishing in general, really. Um, but, yeah, I, I was definitely concerned. Um, and one big challenge that we do have is that we're not in, not allowed in rivers and creeks. We're only allowed, you know, along the headlands and offshore, which hopefully that, that will be changed in the future. So that, that was probably my biggest concern. Most of my recreational barramundi fishing was up in rivers and creeks, so I hadn't done a, a real lot on the headlands or offshore, so that was a big concern, but that's a risk I was prepared to take. you got to back yourself, and, um, you know, I don't think there was one single day that we came home empty-handed. We always caught some fish, some days better than others, and, and we learned every day, and, yeah, we'll, we'll only improve as, as time goes on. You're living the dream, according to some people out there who'd love to be catching barra for a living on a hand line. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, mate, and it is it is literally living the dream. You know, I um, just hand line fishing in general. That, that's what I've wanted to do since I was about five years old. It was a dream of mine since I was a boy, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually doing it and making a making a decent living it's not easy that's for sure no commercial fishing's easy and the barramundi well that's just an extra you know an even bigger challenge than than 
what we're used to. I'm used to reef fishing and basically coral trout and red emperor and things like that. So Barramundi's, you know, it's a complete new ball game and, um, yeah, definitely a lot of challenges, but nothing's nothing comes easy, that's for sure. Do you think this is the future of commercial barramundi fishing, going to Lion Court and a total phase-out of gillnets? Well, I think whether we like it or not, there is going to be a total phase-out of gillnets, at least in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, which runs from tip of Cape York down to, um, you know, southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. So whether we like it or not, that is being phased out. I'm not sure about the Gulf or the Territory or anywhere, but I'd imagine there'd be some pretty big changes coming for both of them areas as well. Whether it's the next big thing for Barramundi or not, I'm not sure because, you know, as you've said there before, it's definitely not as efficient as a gillnet, so the prices are going to have to rise considerably. The average person, it'll probably probably will put Barramundi, wild-caught Barramundi out of reach, Line court barramundi is going to be far more expensive than net court. But the world wants sustainability and quality now a lot more than what they used to. And, you know, at the end of the day, commercial fishermen are, are catching fish for the public, not for ourselves. We've got, to, we've got to deliver what they want, not what we want. So, yeah, I can, I can definitely see potential in line court barramundi, that's for sure. That is Chris Bolton, a commercial fisherman from Caramine Beach, which is about 120 kilometres to the south of Cairns. And as mentioned, he is the first commercial fisher in Queensland to receive a licence to catch and sell line caught barramundi. Chris, he's underway. He is catching fish. He's doing pretty well for himself and has posted some of his catches up on his Facebook page, which has generated a lot of discussion, hundreds of comments flowing into his page, and I'll share some of them with you now. Uh, Wayne says, anyone like yourself that is adapting for their business to survive and thrive needs a pat on the back. But then this from Grant, who says, net court is fantastic, and I don't support line court marketing. It sort of pits one method against another. Nick writes, being a chef by trade, I can tell you that Chris Bolton is on the money with line court barramundi. The typical net fisherman ruined the barra market for themselves, says Nick. Handled correctly, the demand for quality line court barra will outstrip the supply that Chris will be able to keep up with. And Leone says, a leader in sustainable line fishing, well done. Is this the future of the commercial barramundi industry? You can join the conversation this afternoon. Our text is 0487 1057. I do note over in Queensland where gillnets are getting phased out of the Great Barrier Reef, there's talk of bringing restrictions into the Gulf of Carpentaria. David Wren, who is from the Gulf of Carpentaria Commercial Fishers Association, he's on the record saying that if the gillnets were taken out of the Gulf, it would take 6 million portions or 600,000 kilos of protein from the Australian market if the gillnets got taken out of the Gulf. But is that the future of this industry? 0487991057 is our text. Hello there. My name's Norm Hedich from Taruna Proprietary Limited and we're Spanish mackerel fishermen in the Northern Territory and you're listening to The Country Hour. 
It is 18 to 1. The federal court has ordered Project Sea Dragon, a subsidiary of the ASX-listed sea farms, to be liquidated and has appointed administrators to the company pending an appeal. Project Sea Dragon, it's the entity behind those plans to build a massive prawn farm out at Lejeune Station on the WANT border. To learn more, we're joined this afternoon by Alice Marshall, who's been going through the court's decision. Uh, before we talk, ab- yeah, good day, Alice. Um, before we get to the decision, can you just remind us how this case came about? Yeah, so it all came about. I'm going to take you right back to sort of February last year, early February. An independent adjudicator found Canstruct, which is a Brisbane-based construction contracting company. The adjudicator found that they were owed just under $14 million, $13.9 million by Project Sea Dragon for a heap of work that they undertook out at Lejeune Station on the NTWA border just north of Kununurra where I'm sitting. That kind of work was for creating the, the workers' camps, the construction inlets, the reticulation walls that surround the ponds, those kind of things. It was work conducted over a period of years. Now, that on the back of that finding, we saw two weeks later that Project Sea Dragon entered voluntary administration. That was in mid-February last year. A month after that, Sea Farms announced that they'd put Project Sea Dragon into a deed of company arrangement. It's a move that would allow them to limit the amount they'd pay Canstruct to only about 10% of what Canstruct believed that they were owed. Of course, off the back of that, Canstruct took them to federal court. And that's what it's all ended up in the courts. And today, tell us what's happened. Well, today the federal court has ordered, and this came out this morning, to terminate this deed of company arrangement. The reason behind it was that Project Sea Dragon used it to avoid its liability to Canstruct and in what was, a they say, a breach of the Corporations Act. They also ordered the Project Sea Dragon to be wound up in insolvency and they've appointed Cordamentha as the liquidators. Now, it's worth noting, though that all of these federal court orders against Project Sea Dragon are stayed pending appeal. Now, we've heard this morning mm. that Project Sea Dragon, that Sea Farms, are planning to appeal it. They said to us that it's business as usual for Project Sea Dragon until any appeal is determined. We anticipate, we being Project Sea Dragon, anticipate it'll be at least another 12 months They're expected to make an ASX announcement soon. Now, this is all coming off the back of in March twenty in March of last year. So after all of the after they were taken to court, Sea Farms announced that they'd be returning the project that was put into voluntary administration to its directors and that operations were going to continue as normal as that board sought further funding. This federal court ruling, if it does go ahead, to terminate this deed of company agreement is based on the reasoning that Project Sea Dragon shouldn't have been publicly trading. Now, it's Sea Farms Group Limited was placed into a trading halt yesterday. We're expecting that announcement today. But again, if it doesn't if this court order does go through without appeal, it means 
and I'm going to quote here from the court order, that the conclusion has been reached above that Project Sea Dragon has been insolvent since at least June 2020. Further, as Project Sea Dragon was and is insolvent, it ought now ought now to be wound up in insolvency. That ruling says that Canstruct is entitled to that $13.9 million that it's seeking from Project Sea Dragon. And, of course, we wait to see what um, Project Sea Dragon says in that ASX announcement. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much for keeping us up to date, Alice. Appreciate it. No worries. That is Alice Marshall, who is our rural reporter based in Kununurra, as mentioned. Sea Farms is in a trading halt as we go to air this afternoon. Shares in Sea Farms, in case you were interested, are sitting at 0.004 cents per share. It's 13 to 1 and you are tuned into the country hour. The wine industry in Australia is doing it seriously tough at the moment. Growers say they're getting prices now that they were getting back in the 1970s. There was a crisis meeting held in the Riverland of South Australia last night. What was said? What are the solutions? You'll hear from them next. Hello, my name is Sarah. I'm a third-year student studying at Animal Science Faculty, Universitas Gajah Mada. Um, I'm now currently at the Northern Territory for the Indonesia Northern Territory Biosecurity Program. And now you're listening to The Country Hour. I'm just looking at ABC News 24 at the moment. Shares in bigger cheese are up 16.2% this afternoon. Dan, what's going on in the world of cheese? That's that's decent. <laughs> now, farmers in Australia's largest wine-producing region, they held a crisis meeting last night amid historically low prices for their grapes. Growers in South Australia's Riverland say current prices are the same as what they were getting back in the 1970s with many of them considering pushing down vines or just leaving the industry altogether. More than 150 growers went along to this meeting last night. I've been told there was a lot of frustration in the room. And for growers like Maria Cialas, well, she was upset that no politicians bothered to attend. It was nice to hear what other people felt. It was nice for us to have that opportunity to, to say what we thought. But it was, a, it was a blow that we were told right at the end that it pretty much fell on deaf ears today. We were here for nearly two hours. We all poured our hearts out and we were talking to the wrong people. And that's really sad that, um, you know, the people that organised this meeting should have had the right people here that we need to talk to because it's not the first meeting we've had. It's been over several years. We've had many, many meetings. We all know what we're all going through. When are we going to get that meeting with the right people? Who wasn't here that you wanted to be in the room? Well, according to Tony Passon, we should have had... I'm sorry, I can't remember their name, um, Agricultural Minister and, and so on and so forth. So those people that have been there and are polit- uh, politicians or, you know, have time to um, find out um, who we should have had here didn't. Yeah, as you said, it's a, a state parliament sitting week, so some the Premier and the state primary industries minister sent their apologies, yeah. That's right, so that was a silly day to do it, wasn't it? Do you feel like it was worthwhile attending or a waste of your time? To be quite honest, if I knew that from the start, I would have, I would have gone home because I've got 12 men waiting for me at the shed because we're grape harvesting tonight. My three harvesters are waiting to go out. You know, I'm a mum and... 
Uh, I've been up most of the night and up all day, so no, I would have gone home. So what are your key concerns and issues at the moment? Our key concerns is we can't afford to keep doing what we're doing. We don't want to just walk off our land. We want to do what we do and we do it well. We just want to get paid what we should get paid. And yes, it was discussed that, you know, we should we should speak to other people, you know, the council, RIT, to see if they can help us with our bills and stuff. Well, instead of seeing 30 or 40 different companies or people and say, hey, can you help with the bills? Why don't you just see us and say, we can help in the way that we will pay you what we should be paying you and then we can afford to pay our bills. And then it's a vicious circle. It goes round. We get paid, everyone else gets paid. And we don't want to see the Riverland becoming a ghost town where it just started to pick up and shops were starting to open and we've got big corporates that have come in, other places that create jobs and everything for our, our youth and, and uh, the people of the Riverland. If this continues, that's all going to go again. It's going to vanish. So where we've just had that little bit of a taste that the Riverland is growing everything's going to shut down again what do you think about some of the solutions that were discussed today well there wasn't really any solutions discussed like yes as grape growers we had ideas but when you say to me what is the solution i want someone to stand up there that actually can physically provide that solution to tell us this is the solution that we have and we will be doing it within 7 to 14 days because I don't think that they understand that there's people that can't afford to put food on the table at the moment. Lee McLean, I'm the Chief Executive of Australian Grape and Wine. Lee, what are your thoughts on what you've heard today? It's a clear indication that this region is in an enormous state of pain at the moment. It's something we've been talking to government about for years now, particularly since the closure of the China market uh, a couple of years ago. Um, But today you can really see that it is really culminating in a very difficult position for for a lot of grape growers out there. So um, it was important for us to be here. I'm based in Canberra. To be able to bring that to federal politicians' attention is really important. Yeah, you sat, stood and addressed a room um, that at times was hostile to industry representatives. How much pain do you think people are going through? Look, it's absolutely clear. I mean, the stories that we heard today about the prices that have been offered to growers um, being well under the cost of production is indicative of the state of the industry in many places around the country. It's not just the Riverland. If you go to Griffith uh, or Mildura, you're seeing very similar things. So there's no doubt that there is an enormous amount of, of difficulty. There's an enormous number of challenges in this sector at the moment. That's why we need to be able to working. We need to work together wherever we we possibly can to try to solve some of these issues or at least reduce some of that pain where we can. So what are you doing and will you do in your position to um, support wine grape growers? We do a number of things talking to to government officials in Canberra but the the key thing that we're prioritising at the moment is um, our ask of the government in terms of the budget. So we have a a submission in with the federal budget which looks at some support for growers, particularly those growers who may wish to uh, look at exiting the industry or transitioning to other crops. We have a proposal for that. We've also got proposals to help try to grow exports and find new consumers for our products internationally and also another proposal uh, looking at marketing uh, domestically and how to bring tourists to great regions like the Riverland. That is Liam McLean, who's the Chief Executive of Australian Grape and Wine, speaking to Eliza Bellage at that crisis meeting last night in the Riverland. You can read more about the state of this industry if you head along to the ABC Rural website. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stewart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Oh, have you seen this story this morning? I love it. I love it. This is care of ABC News today. It's a story about peacocks in the town of Elliot. 
There's apparently 30 of them roaming around town. And yes, they are beautiful, but apparently they're running amok. They're pooing, they're squawking, and they're scratching up local garden beds. As Elliot local Bob Bagnall explains... They poop on the cars, they poop everywhere. The main street is uh, a disgrace. It's everywhere, and they were just in one part of town, uh, around the caravan park. Now they're gradually going further and further out. They're running amok, and so apparently the local council has now found people to adopt an Elliot Peacock. And they have found plenty of people willing to put up their hand and take a peacock, so they will be relocated. Here is Barclay Council's outgoing executive, Ian Bodle. We are removing some of them with EPA approval, and they're going to be relocated to other spots. I know there's a lot in Madaranka, and some people welcome them. I like the guinea fowl, though. But yes, they are a lot, and one hopes it doesn't get to the point where you have to really cull them because they're fantastic things. Apparently, there's still four more peacocks in Elliot that need a new home. So there's your chance. Country Hour fans, if you've always wanted to own your very own territory peacock, there's still four to go. (laughs) Contact the local council, I guess, if you are keen. I love that story. You can read about it on the ABC News website if you're keen. (laughs) We've still got lots to come in our second half of the Country Hour, but now let's head to the newsroom, one o'clock. G'day, it's Brent Murdoch. I'm the uh, Director and General Manager of Vista Gold. I look after the Mount Todd Project and we always listen to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. I am tipping that there's a lot of people listening to the Country Hour this afternoon who have heard about the big global seed vault in Norway, the Svalbard Seed Vault. It's huge. It is significant, but did you know there is a native seed bank in a territory town? Yeah, this is some of the seeds we got here, and they're from everywhere, from all different air stations and around Tannen Creek area. Yep, we're going to check out this native seed bank for ourselves before 1.30. We'll also be checking out... The prospects of a robot to help the banana industry in the packing shed. And we're also hearing from you on 0487 1057. Some comments coming through regarding our earlier story about Chris Bolton, the commercial fisho from Queensland, who's become the first person in Queensland to get a licence to catch and sell line caught barramundi. I'll go through those comments in a moment, but first let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter's there this afternoon. How are you, Sally? No, not too bad, thanks. The rain's eased off a bit there on the border, from what I can tell. Uh, yeah, because uh, I suppose the biggest indication of that is the biggest falls in the Territory was out at Wangalara. Uh, to, to, this is to 9am. They had 60, basically 69 millimetres, and that's over in the Roper River catchment. So it's, yeah, in Upper Waterhouse, 25.6, Central Island 13.3. I'm struggling to find something on the eastern side or the western. I keep River had 7 millimetres. Mm. Border Creek 6.5. So compared with to those hundreds that they had been getting, it's just a dramatic decrease. Dry now. Ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln, where is it and does it stand a chance of reforming? Uh, it's a hundred, Broome, north, it's northwest of Broome, 
270 kilometres. So it's it's going it's going out to sea, it's, but it's going to parallel the Pilbara coast, and then we're expecting it to to recurve. So there is actually a cyclone watch current for from Karatha, well, sorry, Roeburn to Milia Roadhouse, including Karatha, Dampier, Onslow, and Exmouth. Yeah, and then so yeah. I know um, a lot of cattle stations in the West Kimberley were hoping this system would deliver some significant rain because the West Kimberley has been really dry. But at the moment, it's letting them down. Broome Airport's only had eight millimetres for the 24-hour period. Derby's had nine. Country Downs Cattle Station, which is a bit north of Broome, it's had 36. But, um, well, that's about the biggest rainfall total I can see. Theatre Station, way up in the north, had 40. So, yeah, it's sort of, uh, for those keen on the rain, looks like they're getting disappointed. Yeah, unfortunately, with it moving away, it's not going to... So you might get, if you're lucky, you might get under a bit of a band. There's just one out near Timor at the moment, mm-hmm. heading vaguely towards Kimberley. But generally, it's it's going to be, you're going to have to be very lucky and, and get underneath one of those feeder bands into it. And, and it's going to have to be relatively quick just because it's moving away at the moment. So the further it goes away, the less likely you are. And you're back to relying on just the, the typical build-up type convection. So in terms of the next few days in the Northern Territory, what's to report? Uh, well, we do have the trough slowly redeveloping along the North Coast, so we, we'll see a return to gusty storms over the Barclay, Carpentaria and into the top end tomorrow and then probably more daily district tomorrow, on Saturday, just as the, you get that little bit of a surge coming in from the south. The... We will eventually see the rain pick up along the north coast, but that's more the tr- with the trough in there. The, if you're down south, very hot conditions, south of about Tea Tree Barrow Creek Way. It is going to be a little bit cooler to, well in the in the southern parts of the NT, so southern parts of the Leicester and southern parts of the Simpson District. We've got a bit of a, a southerly change coming through, which is a little bit drier as well. So it's probably more the fact that it's going to be a bit drier that people are going to notice because we do have a sort of low intensity heat wave down through there but temperatures are only dropping from the high to particularly on the edge of it to the high 40s down to the, to the low 40s down to the high 30s so it's not going to be really cool and you don't have to go far north before you're really not getting any cooling but that dry air will just allow so your body to cool down a little bit more and, and the swampy air conditioners to maybe work a little <laughs> bit better. Now, on the text, 0487 991057, got a, a question here from Alan who says, can you please ask the Bureau to tell us how Darwin's rainfalls go in year to date? And also an update on Manton Dam and the rural aquifer. Um, Alan... I can tell you Manton Dam has been overflowing since mid-January. And as for the aquifers in the rural area, tune into the Country Hour next week, mate, when we have our sort of monthly update with the department on how aquifers are faring. But as for the third part of that question, Sally Cutter, can you tell us about Darwin's rainfall so far for the wet season? Yep. For the airport, we've had 1,232.6 millimetres, which is, uh, if, if, if you work out the average that you're at to today, basically, on 83 years, 83 seasons, we're at 103.7%. So we're just above, and just it puts us ranked as number 33rd. Mm. Yeah. All right, then. So we, we were a bit further when we, at the end of that big rain burst, but because it stopped raining and the, on average it keeps on going up, we 
crop back a bit. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for your time, Sally. Really appreciate <laughs> That's it. That's okay. Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. And Alan, I hope you got the answers you were after. Thanks for the question. And yes, in terms of the aquifers, we catch up with the department once a month to find out how they're faring. That should be next week. I'm pretty sure next week. Now, we started today's Country Hour speaking to Chris Bolton. He's a commercial fisho in Queensland. And he has become the first commercial barramundi fisherman in Queensland to receive a licence to catch and sell line caught barramundi. This is what he told us. So up until this year, commercially line catching barramundi had been illegal, believe it or not. When that became legal... I thought I'd give it a go. We, um, my market's mostly high-end restaurants and resorts. Their real focus on any of the produce they buy is sustainability and really high-quality produce. So, um, I think as most most fishermen would know that well-looked after saltwater barramundi is up there with some of the best best eating fish you can get. So that's Fisho Chris Bolton, who's got this first licence to catch and sell line caught barramundi. Over in Queensland, of course, gill nets are getting phased out of the Great Barrier Reef. There's a proposed restriction on gill nets in the Queensland side of the Gulf of Carpentaria. And this is all happening during a time where there's a lot of debate about gill nets right here in the Northern Territory. Is line caught barramundi the future? We've asked for your thoughts this afternoon on 0487991057. One message here says, great to hear Chris Bolton and his experience with line caught commercial barramundi. Adapting methods to meet consumer expectations in terms of sustainability and quality, not to mention appropriately valuing the wild barramundi resource, says someone. Uh, Sprinkle says, Matt, after listening to Chris, I'm rigging up every handline and rod I've got, and I'm ready to cast. Who knows? Might even catch that million-dollar barra. And if I do, you and I are going out for lunch for big, juicy territory steak. Gee, that sounds good to me, Sprinkles. That sounds good to me. If you missed that interview with Chris Bolton, it'll be up on our podcast later on this afternoon. We were also talking about the federal court's decision today regarding Project Sea Dragon. And it was referenced the millions of dollars of government money that's been spent on roads and bridges out to Lejeune Station and also in the Territory. Um, I've got a message here that says it's not federal government and territory money, it's taxpayers' money. So who is held accountable for the loss of our money? No one yet. They walk away with a fat pension, says a pissed-off Paul in Humpty Doo. There you go. This is all coming through on the text line 0487-991057. Now, if you go to a banana farm, one of the repetitive and physically demanding jobs is taking the bananas off their stalks. It's a process that's known as de-handing. Well, a new project led by the Queensland University of Technology is aiming to automate this process with a specially designed robot. Dr Chris Leonard says the project came from listening to banana growers talk about the challenges in their packing sheds. In the actual packing shed, they really experienced the challenge of uh, de-handing or removing a hand of bananas from, from the bunch. And this is a quite a repetitive um, labour-intensive task um, that can lead to um, getting uh, 
injuries from repetitive uh, cutting and also getting cut by a sharp knife as well. So uh, farmers were, were kind of struggling to get the labor force that they needed to, to de-hand these bananas. Uh, and we really identified this as something that robotics and automation could, could assist with. And the idea is to investigate and develop uh, a solution using robotics and AI uh, to identify where to cut uh, the bananas from the bunch and then get a robot arm to actually execute that. You know, you've got someone working in a packing shed, uh, de-handing and, and cutting up these bananas off the stems and, and into their bunches. What would it look like for a robot to do that then? Uh, so quite quite similar. Um, really, like robot arms now uh, are getting quite smaller in size and they're actually, we would call them uh, more collaborative or cobots. So what they can do is um, they don't take up too much space these days and would um, do the same task, um, move uh, some sort of cutting tool on the end of the robot arm uh, in and actually cut the, the hand off, off the, the stalk. So... Um, we really envision um, a similar size sort of uh, robot to to a labourer and doing that same sort of task. What we don't know is how many we might need um, towards the end, uh, depending on how fast these robots uh, operate. So where are we at currently in this project? What stage are we at? So we, we just kicked off. We're about month, uh, just starting month two. Um, so it's still early days. And what we're currently doing is going through a whole design workshop phase. So We've got a series of design workshops where we're going internally with the project team, going to go through the uh, first design phase, and then we're going to go reach out to some uh, farmers for, for feedback and just to make sure that we're, we're meeting their needs and, and the requirements uh, of what this robot needs to do. Uh, and that really will kick us off into the first few iterations of the design process. What's the kind of time frame that we're looking at this? When could we maybe see this working on a farm? So the time frame at the moment is it's a two-year project where the end goal of this this project specifically is to get a, a demonstrator, so a, a proof of concept that can do the task uh, in a replicated um, sort of sorting facility. And what we then hope is when we demonstrate that, uh, we show that it can work um, relatively well with uh, meeting all the requirements. And then what, what we're hoping to do is, is find commercialization partners that can help us take it from that stage and then and, and give it into the hands of farmers. Potentially, we would get uh, early adopters, farmers that are, uh, really want to get it um, straight away, and we'd test it in their farms. The commercialization partner would start um, testing it in real farms. So I, I think in, in three to four years from now, we would start to see some of this technology in, in the hands of farmers. That is Dr. Chris Leonard, who is from the Queensland University of Technology, speaking to Lucy Cooper. Robots in the packing shed, that's the go. Now on the topic of bananas, the latest edition of the Australian Horticulture Statistics Handbook, and what a handbook it is. It shows that bananas are still Australia's favourite fruit. 91% of Aussie households buy bananas, with the industry producing enough for every single Aussie to eat 14.2 kilos every single year, which, according to the Australian Banana Growers Council, is about 85 bananas each. Yeah, that's. I reckon I do 85 bananas in a year. For sure, for sure. Leon Collins, he's the chair of the Banana Growers Council and says the industry takes pride in being the most consumed fruit in Aussie households. Bananas 
and they're Australian bananas too, we've got to remember, no imports into this country. They are such a wonderful fruit. They're a quick snack. They're a children's snack. They're a dessert. They're um, very versatile in how many ways you can eat them. Um, and convenience, they come in their own package. And that's what they're the consumers number one in the supermarket um, fruit and veggies area. And even in tough financial times where, where, you know, households are doing it tough, what's your thoughts on why the staples like your bananas, your carrots, apples have actually all seen their production values jump in the last financial year? It's it's a good thing they have jumped. It, it, it means what we're doing as as an industry is working. You know, our growers are doing the right thing, putting a good product on on the shelf right through to the cold chain logistics and right through to um, and our marketing of that fruit. It's um, We're all doing a good job, a better job than what we used to, I think, and every little bit helps with this um, amazing fruit we've got. I sat, I sat down for four hours one day and watched one of the big chain stores selling fruit and people were not looking at price. They were just had to, they wanted their bananas, so they picked them up, put them in their trolley and moved on to the next item. This just goes to show you how important they are to our daily lives. So last financial year, on the numbers, looks like a great one for the banana industry. How's this current financial year going, do you think? Yeah, well, it, it, it's it's down a bit last of um, last year, I'd say, because um, just because it's it's been harder harder times. You know, we've gone through a cyclone, and now we've gone through a big flood. So, if if things they are they are still quite alright, but we our cost of production has moved up, so our price we're getting for our product has to move up in in time to make the same difference. So. Um, it's, it's going to be take a while yet, but we'll get there. That's Leon Collins, who's the chair of the Australian Banana Growers Council. As mentioned, bananas were bought by 91% of Aussie households, and the next best fruit, that was apples, purchased by 87% of households. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. The live export trade to Indonesia, it is getting back on track now that Indonesia has issued those import permits for 2024. So since the permits finally came through on late Friday, there's already been two ships leave Darwin Port bound for Indonesia, and now in Western Australia, they're starting to ship some cattle out as well. The first boatload left Fremantle Port yesterday, and there's more boats lining up as Broome Livestock Agent Andrew Stewart explains. Oh, look, I think one, one, one boat definitely has gone out of Fremantle. And I think another one's going today or tonight. So it's a relief, I think, for a lot of people. A lot of these exporters had cattle purchased on the prospects of normal run that you'd get permits that of come, you know, early to mid-January. But to, to get them sort of early to mid-February was a, was a bit of a, a delay and one that the industry really didn't need because obviously things are a bit tight right across the board, especially in Western Australia with the dries. So, yeah, permits released. There was at least two, maybe three shipments of cattle down in Perth area that were ready to go and they've been sort of going out now. As I said, one or two have gone, but probably another one or two in the pipeline. Um, we've just taken on our first couple of boats up here, uh, which will happen, um, I believe, probably around the first uh, beginning or towards the end of the first week of March. So it's exciting that it's happening. It's uh, been an ordering wet, to say the least, up here in the north and sort of driven from Perth up 
over the last couple of weeks and yeah it's yeah borderline disastrous right literally from Perth up it's uh, a yeah, pretty sad state of affairs so the positive for us up here anyhow that we can start getting cattle together and get, get things moving. And that first ship out of the north of the state sort of did you say f- sort of first week of March any chance of it yeah, being yeah. any earlier than that or, or that's it? No we're, we're just well we're just concerned about this system that promised so much and delivered stuff all. So, yeah, well, I think we're just sort of planning around that at that, this stage and I think we're sort of confirming that up in the next sort of 12 to 24 hours. But, yeah, looking at definitely one one shipment, probably two depending on the size of the boat for that, yeah, first, uh, first week sometime in March. That's Andrew Stewart, who's a livestock agent based in Broome, speaking to Belinda Varischetti. And he says because it's so dry in the West Kimberley, there's actually been a lot of cattle going from the west into the Northern Territory on adjustment. Now, you've probably heard about that global seed vault that's tucked away in the frozen mountains of Norway. But did you know there's a seed bank right here in the Northern Territory? I'll take you there next. Hello, uh, my name is Irmulakumana, and I'm one of the Hidalgo Rangers from Northern Arnhem Land, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Yep, hidden away in Tennant Creek at the Kargaroo Nursery is a collection of thousands of native plant seeds. These seeds have been collected by communities in the Barclay and stored at the nursery for people who want to plant them. The nursery's Jerry Kelly gave Victoria Ellis a tour. Yeah, this is some of the seeds we got here. We got all different seeds. They're all got written on them. There's gum, tree, red gum, and there's all finifact, white finifact, white white wattles, and then we got um, there's condongs, and we got all the we got the we got the coconut deer, bloodwood tree. So what we're looking at, we're just looking at rows of Ziploc bags all stacked up on a shelf, and they all contain different types of seeds. From native plants, is that right, Jerry? Yep, that's right. Yep, yep, and they're from everywhere, from all different outstations and all different uh, different area, but round round this round Tannen Creek area. How were they collected? They was collected in in the flower drum and uh, and bought here yeah, from all different different Aboriginal people from the outstation. They brought them in and uh, collected, and then we bagged them all here and uh, here, so we can show ready to plant them and show them out. Some of these seeds are quite small. How are they? Are they literally just picked up by hand and put in the drums? Because there's so many seeds here. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. They get drafted out and 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 and, and sip into into a, into a, like a like a coolerman or into a thing, so you can pour it into the into the bucket. Otherwise, it's very hard. You, like when you put it on top of the coolerman, you tap it down, all your seed fall in. Then you use the coolerman to put it into your into your bucket into your flower drum bucket so you can and then and store it so you can do this and then when you're ready we're going to use them out on some of the outstation right around this area to a lot of the red gum they want plants out in the red gum they got that plenty of that here and all the other ones are finifax and turpentines and and then you got the lemongrass and you got the native lemongrass and you got uh you got the finifax wax they got the bean trees which is the necklace they make the necklace and stuff and beans and then you got all different bush tucker and bush medicine in, in this area too with, the, with all the seeds we got around here. 
So you must have a pretty strong connection with all the people from the different communities who collect them for you. What value did they see in collecting these? Well, they wanted it back. They wanted it back on their committee. A lot of the Aboriginal people now today, they're still getting their, their country back and, and uh, they're going back to live there. They've already got the seed here now, so whenever they want the seed to put in the outstation, it's already here and uh, it hasn't gone away. And so you can pick it up and, and take it out and plant it. And uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to buy them from the shop anymore. You know? This is from the bush. How many kilograms of seeds do you reckon are in this little donger? Oh, I don't know. There's a fair bit in here. More than 20, maybe more like 50 or 60 yeah, there's even. There's a lot in them little packs. See them little little bags there? Mm. There's a lot of the seeds in there too. And uh, and in, the, in these big green bins, and all them ones, there, they're all full of seeds. And in these ones, see, all these packs here, they're, they're all got seeds in them, see? Got all written down on them, what they are. How many different types of seeds do you think you've got? Well... Nearly, nearly all the bush tucker that we can find here around this, around this Tennant Creek area, and uh, there's some just a little bit out of our boundary. What I'm, out of, um, when I mean boundary, out of Warramungu country. Probably like more than 50 different types of seeds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you know if there's anywhere else in Australia that has this big of a native seed collection? No, no one don't have this one. Not, not for Aboriginal person anyway. For, I'm only one stupid one here. I think to collect all this seed, but no one else don't do this. That is Jerry Kelly, the keeper of the seeds at the Kargaroon Nursery in Tennant Creek, showing us around today on the Country Hour. Just quickly, the Stewart Highway is currently open to all traffic, but just be aware there is still water over parts of that highway, especially between Daly Waters and Tennant Creek. And the Barclay Highway is only open to high-clearance four-wheel drive vehicles as there is still water over the road between Three Ways and the Barclay Homestead. Uh, That wraps up today's Country Hour. Thanks to everyone who got involved. And, of course, keep it rural.